Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.'" But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, <clears throat> I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection... I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I went for you at once, or I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear all you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And you yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God, as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him... All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. Cause us to see in your word that which you would have us see. There's a lot here, Lord. Would you bring home, bring home to us the truth Help us to understand. Lord, I pray that we don't just hear information today, but that you would transform our hearts, that you would impact each one of us by the power of your word through the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's sermon title, One Flock, One Shepherd, doesn't come from this text, but rather from the words of Jesus recounted in John when he said, I am the good shepherd. When he said to the people there, I am the good shepherd, he said, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. That prophetic word that Jesus spoke, we see unfolding today in this passage as the eyes of Peter are now open to see that the Gentiles, called the Gohim by the Jewish people, dogs, were indeed not unclean. God had made them, created them in His image. And long ago, when He promised to Abraham that in you all the nations of the world will be blessed, He meant something more than just blessed by the mere presence of the Jewish people. He meant something far greater And as we look through the Old Testament, we see this expanding vision of redemption, that it wasn't just for the Jewish people to be a nation of priests, but it was for the gospel to eventually come through the Messiah and to go to all nations so that people like you and me, Gentiles, could come to faith as well. Now, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel move beyond Jerusalem. We saw it go beyond the Jewish people, moving to Samaria to the east, south to Africa, to the west coast of Israel, where we're looking at today, and north to Syria, to Damascus. It's reached Samaritans, it's reached Gentiles, and it's even reached an Ethiopian eunuch. 
But in Acts 10, we see this wall that has been crumbling, this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile truly come crashing down. If you're old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, you'll remember that it didn't come down in a day. There were many events that led up to this. There were revolts and revolutions in Eastern Bloc countries, and there were protests and things that happened at the wall until that day, November 9th, 1989, when the government ordered that the wall would indeed come down. And it took another few years for it to be completely dismantled. Now, from God's perspective and and in reality, the dividing wall came down at Jesus' death. And we see imagery of that even in that the temple and the temple worship and all of that was dismantled. But from a human perspective, it was taking some time. And even though Jesus had spoken about this and the prophets before Jesus had spoken about this again and again, even someone like Peter was just now going to begin to get it. And it was, it was going to take a special announcement uh, for that to happen. But before we look at that, let's look at who Cornelius was. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was a soldier. As the name implies, he was over 100 men. This was similar to our non-commissioned officer in today's military. And NCOs or non-commissioned officers, what, what separates them in my mind is that NCOs rise from the ranks uh, where officers are appointed to be over. And so while officers have authority that NCOs don't have, the lowest ranking officer is over the highest ranking NCO, NCOs have something that officers don't have, something that's more powerful, I think, than authority. NCOs have influence. And Cornelius was a man of influence, and we see that in how his life is described. God had strategically chosen Cornelius because of who he was, because of his position, because of his influence. Because not only was he a God-fearer, but his household as well. And we're also going to see that some of his soldiers were. He was, a, in a sense, a spiritual leader. But he wasn't yet a believer. He wasn't a pagan. He was what the Jews called a God-fearer. He wasn't a convert to Judaism, but he believed in the God of Israel. He prayed. He gave alms. He was generous. He was what we would consider a good person. The text says he was devout, verse 2. And not only him, but his family and his household as well. His household would have included more than just his family. He would have had at that level of uh, his position in the military. He would have had employees in the household, running the household. He would have had soldiers who lived and worked around him. This means that you know, Cornelius was, again, a man of influence. He was a generous giver, verse 2. He was a man of of continual prayer, the text says. And so God chose Cornelius, having prepared him to hear the message of the gospel when Peter would come and explain that. An interesting point in thinking through all of this, he was a centurion. We look back at the ministry of Jesus. Who was the first Gentile that we see Jesus interact with in his ministry, at least what's recorded In Matthew 8, we see a centurion come to Jesus and say, my servant is sick, will you heal the servant? And Jesus said, okay, let's go. And what does the centurion say? No, I'm not worthy to have you come in my house. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And this is what Matthew writes when Jesus heard this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, Jesus marveled and said, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That prophetic word that Jesus gave that day about the centurion, many will come from east and west, is now being fulfilled in the life of another centurion, Cornelius. And so while he's praying, verse 3 says that he sees a vision. An angel appears. And Cornelius responds as do all people who see angels. In terror, the verse 4 says. He responds in terror. You know, our paintings of angels on our greeting cards, those little cute puffy cheek cherubs that we see, that's not the angels we see in Scripture. Everyone who encounters angels fall down, and they're afraid. They are fearsome creatures. They're not horrible creatures. They're obviously beautiful, but there's, there's something about them that is so tremendous that it causes people to fear. And the angel's words to Cornelius are feel, filled with language of worship, priestly acts of worship. He says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. As a Gentile, Cornelius would not have been allowed into the temple. He would not have been allowed to to sacrifice. But something is at work in his life. God is working in his heart to lead him toward faith. And there there may be people here today. You come to church. You you believe in God. You're a God-fearer. You're a devout person. You give. You pray. But you haven't come to the place in time where you have confessed and believed in your heart in the name of Jesus. This was, this was Cornelius' situation. But I point this out also to you may have people in your life who are in this position who God is preparing, stirring their hearts, causing them to desire to know more. And I think the challenge for us is are we going to be like Peter, ready to respond as we're going to see Peter is? to go and to explain the truth of the gospel and call people to faith and repentance. Cornelius still needed to hear the gospel and to confess with his mouth and believe in his heart that he might be saved, and we see this happen. But the angel, of course, could have delivered this message. I mean, you know, from a logistical standpoint, God could have saved a lot of time and energy, right? I mean, the angel's already speaking to him. Let's just go ahead and tell him what the good news is. No, God uses means because God has something in store for Peter as well as Cornelius. God's got a little object lesson for Peter to learn from. You know, Peter, let's remember who Peter is. And as we're going to see here, he, he, he has to hear it three times, right? Cornelius, or, uh, Peter sent, t- t- tends to be a little thick-headed. Many of us can relate to, to someone like that. Well, God has something in store for him, and he's going to use Cornelius and his family to teach him. And so meanwhile... Peter, verses 9 through 33, we see him back spending time in prayer. He goes up to the rooftop. He's there on the sea at Simon the Tanner's house, probably for some peace and solitude. He's hungry. Verse 9 tells us, and while the food is being prepared, he falls into a trance. Now, this is a literal trance. It's not that feeling that when you're really hungry and you get lightheaded and you feel like you're in a trance, something supernatural happened here. And during this trance... Peter sees something like a big sheet being lowered down from heaven, verse 11 tells us. And inside the sheet are all these animals. And then a voice comes, rise, Peter, kill and eat. It doesn't tell us who the voice is, 
But I, I think it was a voice that Peter would have recognized. I think this was the voice of Jesus. And yet, how does Peter respond? <laughs> no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And again, we think, Peter, come on. <laughs> but it's Peter. So he has to hear it three times. But let's, let's be a little compassionate to Peter. Why would he be so brazen as to hear the command of the Lord to take, to kill, and to eat? Don't call anything unclean what the Lord has made clean. Why would he resist that? Well, the order to kill and to eat an animal that was considered unclean for a Jewish person strikes at their very identity. It is a part of who they are. The kosher laws that had been handed down by the Lord to Moses define not only what they ate and what they didn't eat, but how food was handled and who they could eat with and thus who they wouldn't eat with. That's why it's such a big deal that when they showed up at Peter's house that he invited them in. They apparently spent the night before leaving, so he invited them in as his guests. Then he went into their home, something that, again, Jews just did not do this. Food was a really big deal. And Peter prided himself on keeping those laws that had been handed down to Moses. We don't have time to look today, but if you're curious or if you've never looked at them, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 both include not only lists of foods that are forbidden, but also how foods were to be handled. And you'll see that if you look at modern uh, Jewish kosher laws, these uh, rules have been kind of reinterpreted and expanded a little bit to include things that uh, may not have been originally intended. But when you look at the list, you'll see some animals there that you have no problem saying no to. It doesn't bother you one bit that they're on the list. None of us really want to eat a vulture or a rock badger or a camel or a seagull, right? I mean, we look at that and we say, okay, we're good with that. But then we look further down the list. And let's all admit, the biggest deal, the biggest problem we have is, is, is bacon, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the biggest issue. Uh, pork is on the list, not to mention shrimp, and some of you might even like to eat rabbit, although that may make a few people uncomfortable, but many cultures in the world too. So there were these foods on there that, that were hard maybe to say no to. I mean, if you, you, you know what it smells like when you cook pork, you know? The whole neighborhood knows. There were also rules, though, about how the food was handled. And again, we've seen those rules expanded. One of the rules was that the, the young goat was not to be boiled in its mother's milk. And they've expanded that rule to not mix meat and cheese and these kinds of things. And if you, if you think about this long enough or if you've ever gone to Israel, you know that, that it's going to be hard to find a good pizza. Because you've ruled out pork and now you've ruled out mixing meat and cheese. And so I can tell you that I've had some of the worst pizza in my life in Israel on multiple occasions. You can get vegetarian pizza, and that's fine. That's okay to put cheese and bread and vegetables together. But instead of pepperoni and all the good pork products that you would have on pizza, their alternative is to put tuna on pizza. Yeah, exactly. And it's really not as bad as it sounds because it's kind of like a tuna melt, but it gives you the worst heartburn ever. Now, some people consider the kosher laws as just a, a way that God provided some hygienic rules for the people of Israel to kind of protect them. And there may have been some hygienic benefit. If you've ever, if you've ever eaten seafood that hasn't been handled correctly, shrimp or lobster, or if you've ever handled, you know, eaten pork that hasn't been handled correctly, you know that that can be a, 
all kind of mess that is just you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. So there was some hygienic benefit, but that wasn't why the Lord gave them the rule or he wouldn't have removed it at this point in history because refrigerators aren't going to be invented for another almost 2,000 years, right? So it's, it's, it's just a side effect. Now, the real reason that God gave these rules was to separate his people from the Gentiles. He gave them these rules as a father gives or a mother gives a child rules to protect And so these rules kept them separate or were designed to keep them separated from the surrounding nations. It differentiated them. It set them apart. It kept them out of each other's homes and out of each other's social contexts. And it sounds like a bit over the top, and it was. But Paul explains in Galatians why it was so over the top, that God treated his children like children because they needed the law to protect them. In their immaturity, their hearts, they would not... And we see what happened with the nation of Israel, even with the law. Did they keep separate? Did they stay away from the gods of the pagan nations around them? No. Again and again and again and again and again, his people went back and they joined and they intermarried and they took on and they syncretized those religions. So the kosher laws were given as a means to protect and to set apart. The reality is the law cannot change a heart. It never has been able to, and it never will be able to. The law can protect. The law is good, but it can't change a heart. And we see this happen among the Jewish people. I already mentioned that they, over time, began to look down on Gentiles. They began to look at themselves as a little more special, as a little bit more set apart, thinking that God's love for them was based on who they were and their holiness and their inward goodness, as opposed to God simply based on God's love and mercy. But if you go back and you look in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8, you will see that God chose Israel not because she was special or mighty or the the best looking, but because of his love. That's why he had selected them, and they'd missed the mark. Also, the lines became blurred for the Jews as they began to confuse true holiness with eating the right foods, thinking that somehow eating the right foods made them morally pure. And folks, we can do the same thing. But Jesus debunked this in in, in Mark 7. He says, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him, but what comes out. It's our hearts that are the issue. And so when we do external things... Let's not get confused to think that that's what makes us holy. And additionally, the law confused the Jews to think that their selection was in their ethnicity. In other words, they began to put their faith not in God as Savior, but in their flesh, in their ethnicity, and in their identity. So for Peter, it was a big, big deal to take and to eat from a list of foods that had been forbidden. It was huge. So let's cut him some slack as to why he kind of pushed back a little bit. Now, Peter had seen the barrier between the Jew and the Gentile, or the Jew and the Samaritan come down. He had, remember, he had gone over to Samaria after Philip had taken the gospel there. He had been there to verify that the Samaritans truly received the gospel, that the Holy Spirit fell on them. But now God is using this vision and this following uh, what's going to happen with Cornelius to see that the wall was completely down. It was gone. It was gone at the cross. What set the nation apart, the civil, the ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ. Ethnicity, nationality are nothing. 
Food and ceremonial laws are nothing because Jesus is everything. This is what God's trying to get home to Peter. Jesus has made everything clean. Don't call it common, meaning the people. Now, it's nice that he also made the food clean as well. I mean, we can thank God that we now can eat bacon and enjoy it. Or we can eat shrimp wrapped bacon or bacon wrapped in anything or whatever it is, right? But that wasn't the ultimate point of what he's trying to get home. It was that he had made all people now able to respond to the gospel. He would now be saving people from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues. In other words, the promise that he made to Abraham, he was indeed keeping it. And so the vision ends and verse 17 tells us that Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean. So he's sitting there wondering, what does this mean? What does this mean? What in the world is going on? This rocked his world. And at that time, the men Cornelius sent to him showed up. They come to the gate and they call out because they're not going to go in. They typically would not have been invited into a Jewish home. But verse 23, Peter told by God, these men, I sent them for you. Go let them in. And uh, he does. And he not only brings them in, but they clearly share food. He lets them sleep there. This was, again, all taboo. The next day, they, they get up and they go back to Caesarea. And upon arriving at the house of Cornelius, Peter sees that he's invited his whole family and his close friends to his home. And they were ready to learn from Peter, knowing that he was sent by God. But remember, God was always also using this to teach Peter what he was going to do in his kingdom. And upon receiving or or recounting the story, Cornelius tells exactly what happened to Peter. We see that. And then in verse 33, he says, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. They're ready. God has prepared them. Now, Peter, all he has to do is just speak the truth. And so look at how he begins The first thing he says, verse 34, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Boom! Peter got it. The object lesson had worked. He is, I mean, this had to, again, just rock his world for weeks and months to come, what had actually happened. But God had penetrated his heart, and he sees God shows no partiality. He had gone from being perplexed to now understanding it. And then he goes from that, the message, you know, the, the message of hope now is for the whole world. And he begins instructing them in that gospel message. You know, when you and I read the Old Testament, we see Jesus everywhere. We see the promise that he, that he is the hope of nations. But Peter was only just beginning to understand it. I mean, you can imagine as he goes back in his mind and recounts certain passages and was like, ah, oh, it was there. It was there all along. I missed it, Right. Everything he had grown up hearing, everything he had been learning, even things he had learned from Jesus himself. So then when we look at verse 43, it's significant that that, that Peter says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He really is understanding it. So while he's speaking, as he's saying this, the Holy Spirit falls on all who heard, verse 44 says. Now, today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day that we mark the gift of the Holy Spirit to God's people. You know, last week we marked Ascension Sunday when we celebrate Jesus' return to heaven from earth. But he promised when he left, he promised his disciples that the helper, 
the Comforter would come. He said, nevertheless, in John 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts is to our advantage. Let that sink in. We are better off with the Holy Spirit in our heart. It's to our advantage. Now, you may not realize what all those advantages are, but hear me when I say to you, this is a big deal. You know, every other religion in the world, their God is far off. He must be approached and appeased. He can't be known intimately. But our God has made each of us a temple, sending His Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It also means that God is close. He's never far. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13. He is a comfort when we hurt. He is a shield and a protector when we're in danger. He's our helper and He's the source of infinite power. He convicts us of sin, pricking our hearts when we walk away from the Lord in thought or in deed, John 16, verse 8. He instructs and illumines our hearts through the Scriptures, causing us to see things anew and bringing deep understanding to the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.11. And He intercedes for us when we don't have words to pray, when we're too weak to speak, when we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.26, intercedes for us. It is to our advantage that God has sent His Spirit to live in each one of us. He is with us. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. He's brought us into His flock, making us one flock, one people, with one shepherd. The dividing wall is gone. It's torn down. There's no longer distinction of Jew or Gentile or any other human distinction that we've created. In Christ, we are all one. And the proof, the proof of this is that He has given to all who believe His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us your spirit and we celebrate today on Pentecost Sunday the fact that you have made our bodies a temple for you. Lord, that is so beyond comprehension. Why would you do this? And then we look to the cross and we see your great love and the work that Jesus accomplished. And although it still blows our minds, Lord, we are so grateful that we haven't been left to our own strength, that we haven't been left to our own wisdom, that we haven't been left to our own power to resist sin. Lord, but you have sent your spirit to dwell in us. Cause us to understand all that means. Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, work in us to not only bring understanding, but to bring transformational power in our lives. Change the way we live. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today Maybe like Cornelius, maybe they're a devout person. Maybe they're here and they, they pray, they believe, they know you're real, but they have never confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, save them today? Quicken their hearts. Bring new life. Lord, thank you for your word. May it continue to ring in our ears as we go out today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.